Welcome to Church 213. The book of James is a powerful blueprint for authentic and relational faith written by the brother of Christ. This unique letter challenges the minds and hearts of a church at its best. Journey with us through this book. Thanks for listening. Take your copy of God's Word. Hey, let's go, let's go to, uh, to James chapter 5. All the way at the end of James chapter 5. And uh, we're going to stand in the honor of, and reading of God's Word here in just a minute. In just a minute. Y'all are like, let's get out of here faster. <laughs> we're going to hold us here as long as God says we need to be here. Amen. So if you'll notice, if you got to James chapter 5, you know, it's almost at the end. We've been there the last 11 weeks. And what you'll notice is uh, there is no chapter 6. Which means we have now arrived at the, the exit ramp of what is a series that we've worked through the last 11 weeks that's titled, A Church at Its Best. <clears throat> we need a church at its best. I don't know about you, but, but I need a church at its best. Are y'all with me? My family needs a church at its best. A world at its worst needs a church at its best. And on November the 5th, we began this arduous journey that I really believed in my heart that was needed for us as a church body. And I challenged you with this. A church that's at its best corporately as a body that is authentic and that is maturing individually. It starts in here. And then it filters its way in here. And then it works its way out there. And so what the book of James has done is it's put us through a series of tests of the genuineness of our salvation. Is it real? <clears throat> or is it just situationally convenient salvation? Are you a, are you a fan? Are you a, a follower? And James has walked, walked us through all of these things. See, I believe one of the reasons we're not seeing a move of God in the streets is because of artificial commitment and maturity in these seats. And a real born-again believer will have marks that identify that we're growing. It'll have marks. Your life will have marks if you're growing in your followership. It'll have marks if you're growing in your discipleship. It'll have marks that, that kind of test if you're growing in your fellowship, it'll have marks that, that measures if you're growing in your worship. Thumbs up. Praise God. Hey, how do you know if something is alive? It's changing. That's a good indicator that something is alive. For almost 14 years now, um, we, we have a door frame at our house in between the kitchen and the laundry room that we've been tracking the growth chart of our kids. Some of you guys maybe have done this in your own house. But we measure it in all three of them. And it's one of the most precious pieces in our home because it's kind of messy. You know, it has a lot of fingerprints on it. Some of the ink's gotten smudged. But when I walk past that, that door frame every day, I can tell that, that there's real life. There's maturity happening. And it doesn't happen overnight. But over the course of 14 years, now we know why Emma is taller than her mama. She's been growing. Um, I took a picture of it. I want you guys to see it. Just a little glimpse into the wide home. It's 
some of those are my marks, some of those are Debbie's marks. Um, you can just see 22 and 23, and this is where... Parker was, and what Parker doesn't like is where Emma compares where she is when he, when he was, she was his age, and, and she's taller than he is. Um, you can kind of see those marks, P-W-E-W. Um, you got a little Sadie Joy. She's bringing up the rear down there. I got another one, too. There it is. <clears throat> That's just a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful, a beautiful picture for us. Those marks are precious. Because what it does is it tells of real life inside of the White House. It, and it's there. Week after week, you know, if you think about what we've done in the book of James, we've looked at a magnifying glass for authentic growth. For, for 11 weeks, there's been these different tests for, for genuine salvation. After we've placed our hearts under a microscope of God's Word to test us and to grow us, and He can use us. And that has been the, that's been the, the, the thrust, the theme behind the church at its best, is to measure, one, are we really alive? And two, are we growing? As we are like those dispersed believers living in Romerica. And that takes us all the way to the theme, to the, to the end of the book today. What I like to do is... Is if you, if you, and we're going to dig into it here in just a minute. But I love what James does right here because of all the tests he could have laid out over the last 11 weeks. And there's been a lot of different tests. There's these last two. There's these last two that he kind of saves to the end as he closes the book on a church at its best. And I appreciate the last two because these last two, they're like that super glue seal, they're, they're like that flex seal that, uh, that's, that seals, that seals. The, uh, the definition of a healthy church. These last two things are, are those final finishing touches of a healthy church. And I can't think of a, a better mark of the church that's full of genuine believers to test these things more than consistency and prayer. And so that's kind of the title of the message. A church at its best. We're going to unpack these two words as we read the last part of James is consistent and prayer. Consistent and prayerful. A, mar a final mark of a healthy church as James closes the book is that a church body, are y'all with me, is consistent and it's prayerful. You guys write this down. Anyone who claims to follow Christ but doesn't desire consistency and prayer like Christ, can't authentically follow. Anybody that says, hey, I'm growing, but there are no marks on the doorframe of heaven, should cause you to say, wait a minute, am I actually alive? And those marks, as James ends the book, is consistency and it's, and it's prayer. And so James ends with the two most critical elements to test me and to test you in our house and this house is we live for his good purposes. And so let's stand together at the very end of this magnificent book. The book of James, chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I'm sorry, starting in verse 12. James chapter 5, starting in 12, says this. 
Above all, my brothers and sisters. So this is written to us if you have a relationship with Christ. The church. The faith family. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth with any other oath. But let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. So that you won't fall under judgment. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is any among you sick? You should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Verse 17, Elijah was human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that, he would not, that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Verse 19 and 20. The last two verses in this book alone. This is, this is it, the last two. My brothers and sisters... If any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from their error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Can you imagine James putting the pen down and that's it? Back, I mean, I can only imagine what he was going after all of these 108 verses. He ends with this and then he sends it out to the dispersed believers. You guys can be seated. That's my prayer for us this morning. Is that this letter that was sent out almost 2,000 years ago would reach our hearts the way it reached the hearts of these dispersed believers. And I pray that the word would fall on some good soil. I want to take some new soil this year. Amen? I want to take some ground this year. I want to take some ground. And so if you're thinking about these, these two things, consistent and prayerful, a church at its best is a body equipped with consistent believers. Consistent believers. That's what the text is telling us right here. A church at its best is a body, I chose these words strategically, is a body equipped. It means something that we have, something we use, something that's in our power with consistent Believers, Look at verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you will fall under judgment. If you're with me, say yes. And so as James closes this letter to these dispersed believers, remember, they're scattered with their faith under fire. And so he says above all. Above all right there doesn't mean this is the most important. It, means, it just means finally. It means to sum up. What he's saying is, don't evoke God in promises that you're not, you're not sure you're going to be able to keep. Because you'll fall under judgment of God in falsehood. As I'm thinking about oaths and promises in the context here, it seems a little odd that it's right in the middle of the word suffering. That's kind of the theme. As these believers are suffering, he starts talking about promises and he starts talking about oath. And it might seem a little um, kind of out of place if you don't understand the context. The context is suffering. 
And if these believers that are dispersed aren't consistent to trust God at face value, can they really be trusted to mean what they say and say what they mean in the midst of suffering? See, the Jews were known to make all, especially in the Old Testament, they were, they were, they were, meant to, they were known to make all these type of oaths, all these promises, uh, all, of these, all of these types of things to affirm their life in God. Or just to confirm their commitments. You know, they laid these things out. They would say extra things on top of what they meant in order to give it weight. And the problem was, that type of culture in Rome that you were always having to write contracts and you were having to put oaths and you were having to make promises, they were making their way into the church that should have been built on the promises of a faithful, consistent walk in Christ alone. And so in order for their words to be taken seriously, they would swear. Now, I'm talking about four words, you know, four-letter words. That's, that's not the word for swear. It means just to make a promise. And the problem was they felt like they had to make promises that they couldn't be sure that they could keep. And if you think about suffering, it's really easy to be tempted to bargain with God when tragedy hits, doesn't it? If you've ever suffered, you know what that's like. It's, it's easy to boil your commitments to God down to bargain with God so that he will stop the suffering for whatever's going on. You know this is true. If you, if you, I mean, let me, you take, you take uh, a, a 737 full of people and you put them at 30,000 feet and you add a little turbulence to it. There are people on that plane that have, that have thumbed their nose at the Lord for decades that suddenly start to make promises with the Lord. Are y'all with me? That's, that's the idea here. You ever said this, Lord, if you'll do this, I promise I'll never do this. It's easy, isn't it? Or, if, or you said this, Lord, if you, if you help give me this, I'll promise I'll never do this again. Please, Lord, I, I promise on Grandma's grave. I promise on the Bible. You know, that's playground talk. Do you promise? Do you promise? You promise on the Bible? Yeah. Do you promise on your grandmama's grave? Yeah. Oh, you must be. You see, that's kind of the culture that was making its way. Listen, God doesn't need a promise. He wants consistency. And this attitude isn't of God. Because he's not our magic eight ball. Lord, will you show up? No. Ah! Right? It's not a magic genie. We don't have to prove our trust by making, I don't want you to miss this, we don't have to prove our trust by making some contract with the Lord. We prove our trust by consistency and consistently being patient, watching and waiting and working for Him day in and day out. It's in that consistency that what we say will be proven. It's in that consistency. You guys write this down. If you trust in the goodness, mercy, and the power of God to guide you and to shape you and to hold you in the worst that life has to offer, there's no need for shallow promises to prove that commitment. What does James do? James calls for simple, straightforward, honest speech. That's what he calls for. And what that means for us as believers are to be those who say yes, and they mean it, and say no, and they mean it. 
And so if you love and you live like God runs your life, and, and if you live as in you trust God and, and you filter your problems through His mighty hand, what happens is people will begin to trust your consistency of faith. And what the Word will do, they'll, they'll start respecting your nose because there's consistencies of the yes. In my house, there's things that we're just not going to do. No means no. Any parents ever said that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're a counting parent. I, I've never been a counting parent. I've never been the one that says no, and then I'm going to give you the count of three. And what happens is they get to three, and then that kid knows because last time mama went four, five, six, then three really means nothing. And before long, chaos breaks out in the line of the grocery store. Okay, and I can always discipline everybody else's kids, but I don't, I don't want to sometimes. Like, stop counting. Do you think the Lord says one, two? No. It's just consistency. It's just consistent walking. See, believers are to be known as people who keep their word. Amen, church? Having such uprightness, having such uprightness that yes means yes and no means no. That's, that's one of our core pillars here. Doctrine is our bedrock. Unity is our glue. Ethics is our what? It's on the back of some of your shirts. Ethics is our power. That's it. Ethics is our power. Which means your, your yeses and your noes affect your effectiveness in the body of, of Christ. And James speaks right into our three core values. He, he says consistently being consistently pure and being consistently truthful. So let's just let our Walk with the Lord, prove our yeses and our noes. Amen. We don't have to make all these promises. We don't have to make all these oaths. Let's just live it out like we really believe it. And watch what the world begins to do. I tell you what will happen. They'll begin to be drawn to it. In a world that waffles on, on, on subjective truth and, and objective truth, the world knows there, there, there is a standard. And so when there's a healthy body of believers that walk according to that standard consistently... It's like a black hole. It, it, just draws, it just draws that darkness in. And so we can experience what, uh, what Bailey and Emily have experienced. Consistency. A church at its best is equipped with consistent believers. But then look at verse 13. And so he twitches gears. He said, if anyone among you is suffering, he should pray. So not only is a church at its best should be full of a consistent believers, but we ought to be if we ought to be prayerful believers. That's what we should be known for. As we are dispersed. Y'all with me? As we are dispersed, somebody ought to look and say, boy, that, that church right there is consistent, and that church right there is prayerful. Would it be known for our consistency in our prayer? Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so what James does right here, and he, and he does it for us too, these scattered saints, there's this powerful appeal 
to do the one thing, I don't want you to miss this, to do the one thing no one who genuinely outside of faith will consistently do, and that is to pray fervently. Man, what a test for real, authentic Christianity. Fervent prayer. You can't fake fervent prayer. You can fake um, situationally convenient prayer when things just aren't going your way. But I'm talking about fervent prayer. That's praying fervently for, for the well-being, and he says this, for the well-being and for the rescue of others, which is the great commandment. Jesus said that himself. Matthew 22 says this. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus lays out these two commands and then James lays out these two marks of authentic, healthy church. Consistency and prayer. Because when you consistently, consistently love the Lord, you're going to consistently, fervently pray for other people. Are y'all with me? Love God and love people. Man, what a... What a magnificent ending test for this letter. All of these 108 verses come down to this right here. That the greatest mark of any church doorway of authenticity is our prayers with and for another person. And so James lays out a few simple questions and command to guide us on how we are to pray for each other as we suffer, as we wait upon the Lord, waiting and watching. We kind of laid that out last week. And so I want you to, don't forget this. He, uh, he's, he's writing to people out of town. There are no other letters being sent. Jesus is in heaven. And all these believers had was faith in the Lord, a few circulating letters of instruction and encouragement one with another. But if you think about it, we really don't have anything more today. We still have the same thing. We have a risen Savior. Amen. We have, we have a collection of ancient God-breathed text. And we got one another. So look to your left and right. This is what we got, people. We got a risen Lord. We got an inspired text. And you got that guy or gal on your left and right. This is it. This is it. Aren't you glad you came to church for this encouraging message? But listen, listen, those three things working in unity is still the most powerful force the world has ever known. Those three things right there, a three-chord strand, continues to change the world. The Word of God, the risen Savior, and the church still has power. A church that prays together, what? Stays together. And so how, how uh, appropriate that James would lay this out as the last test for believers. Like, hey, you got to pray for one another. you got to pray for one another. But how are we to do that? Well, James lays it out. Look at verse 13. If anyone among you is suffering, he should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. 
So as a church at its best, as we go out in 2024, we are to pray for others. What James is saying is, you guys can write this down, we are to pray for one another when suffering hits home. We are to pray for each other when suffering hits home. If you can't afford to pray with somebody who's in need, you're broke. Now, when James talks about suffering, um, the word here, it's those circumstances of grief and distress that, that just crash into our life. Man, life will crash in on you, won't it? And so what James is saying is, you know, it, it's those spiritual burdens caused by hardship. This is not talking about you know, a result of sin or maybe a discipline of the Lord because the Lord disciplines those that He loves, as Scripture tells us. This is, this is knowing that grief just has a way of finding us by nature, the nature of just living in a broken world. And when a brother and sister in Christ is going through it, they need somebody to go through it with. Amen? And Paul uses the word um, suffering, and it's the same word, that James uses, that Paul uses when he's talking about suffering in prison. He's not there because of sin. He's not there because um, of discipline for God. He's there just because he's living for the gospel in a broken world. 2 Corinthians 11, it's not up there, but I want to read it to you. This is some of the ways that Paul says he was suffering. He said, I've worked much harder. I've been jailed more often, beaten up more times I can count. And at death's door time after time, I've been flogged. Five times with the Jews, 39 lashes, beaten by Roman rods three times, pummeled with rocks once. I've been shipwrecked three times and immersed in the open sea for a night and a day. And we get all been out of shape when Taco Bell takes too long. In hard traveling, year in and year out, I've had to ford rivers, fend off robbers, struggle with friends, struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city. I've been at risk in the country, endangered by desert sun and sea storm, and betrayed by those I thought were my brothers. I've known drudgery and hard labor, many a long and lonely nights without sleep, many a missed meals, blasted by the cold, naked to the weather. And in verse 28, he says this, and that's not the half of it. When you throw in the daily pressure and anxieties of all the churches, when someone gets to the end of his rope, I feel the desperation in my bones. When someone is duped into sin, an angry fire burns in my gut. Verse 30 and 33. If I have to brag about myself, I'll brag about the humiliations that make me like Jesus. Man. The mark of a church is that we just pray with one another when life hits home. Life's hard, and that's the reality of it. Our house spring leaks, your house burned down, you lose a job, you lose a pet, you lose, a, lose your keys. You, you might lose your keys, but you find a nail in your tire. You find out a good friend has turned bad. But I don't want you to miss this. The beauty of a church community is not everybody's facing the same bad at the same time. Verse 13 says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. See, no matter what I bring into this place on Sunday, here's what I know. I know that somebody is smiling. Somebody's had a good week. 
And that encourages me because somebody that had a bad week last week is somebody's good week next week. And then I know that my bad this week might be somebody's good week next week. And so when we come in here and we're really caring about one another and we carry the burdens of one another and we pray for one another, we can continue to sing praises even in the midst of the storm. And that's what James says. He says, is anyone cheerful? They should praise. And y'all listen to me. The beauty of this text tells me right here that God balances our lives in hours of suffering and in days of singing. And the mark of a church at its best, if you're thinking about the doorpost of growth, is the mature believers can sing in the midst of suffering. Knowing that it ain't going to be like this forever. This too shall pass. And we say that often, especially, to, to, maybe you've heard us tell you that, especially like young, young couples who got the diaper bag and the bottle and you know, you know, they hadn't changed their shirt in three or four days and they're just hanging on like a thread. And some of the greatest words that people spoke into our life when we were in that season, they would say, this too shall pass. And it does. We walk past that door frame at the house and we notice, man, those days, they've passed and they've grown up. Just keep showing up. Be consistent. Keep, keep moving forward because God balances our lives. And, and let me tell you this, church. God is able to give you songs in the night. Amen? Are y'all with me? That's good preaching right there. He, God can give you songs in the night. We weep for a moment, but, but God brings joy in the morning. Job says that, Job 35.10. But no one asks, where is God my maker who provides us with songs in the night? Acts 16.25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were what? Listening to them. And if we're to be a church at our best, we have to stay with each other and we have to pray with each other when tough times hit because it's our collection in suffering that empowers our calling. Can you worship God in nature? Yes. Can you, can you watch church online? Yes. But I'm going to tell you, where are the trees and where are the online church family when tears are streaming down your face? They are nowhere to be found praying for you. And so we are to consistently a part, be a part of a church family because we need one another. We need to be able to walk hand in hand with somebody that's going through a hard time saying, hey, God will give you a song in the night because I've been singing it a couple of weeks ago and I'm here to tell you he's faithful. And that blows wind in our sails. And so we are to take our needs before the Lord, not just those burdens, but, but what he's saying is our, our physical needs before the Lord with others who have walked that same road of maturity. He, he calls on the elders. Look, it says, if anyone is among you sick, he should call for the elders of the church. The word there is, is not um, ivory tower necessarily um, upper echelon male leadership. No, it, ju it just means those mature believers that have walked through the fire for a long period of time who have a, um, who have a body of work in their, in their service to the king. He's saying, hey, if you're suffering, you want to get some people around you that know that there are songs in the night. And he says, what you want to do is, 
You want to call the elders and, and you want to get some oil. And the point that he's making is a physical demonstration of recommitment and faith that a person affirms the will of God. Because the reality is there's nothing special about that oil. I've got some in my office. There was a little boy gave Sadie some. She brought it home. They're in fifth grade. I'm like, what are you doing with that anointing oil? She's like, some kid gave it to me at school. You know, and her sister had been fighting over it. I'm like, you don't fight over anointing oil. What are we doing here? Where is that anointing oil? Is this still at the house somewhere? Mansfield Elementary. I need to call their administration. What's going on up there? But I've got some. You know, and, and it's, just, it's just extra virgin olive oil that I use. It's, it, it, it's a symbol that there's, there's, there's nothing special about that substance. <laughs> there's no magic to it. You know, I don't call a hotline or order it from, from heaven. It's not, it's not like that. What it, the point is this. The oil is applied by the elders, catch this now, in solidarity of the Lord's will. It's a sign of recommitment. The power is not in the oil. The power is in the prayer. The power, is, it says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Whether in death or in healing, my situation is in your hands for your purpose. Just like this water is a symbol of new life, the anointing oil is a symbol that you have put your life in Christ in his hands. Lord, have your way. I trust you. All to you, I put it in your hands. And so I'm going to get some people around me that have lived it and that have walked it and believe it. And I want to get them around me. And we're going, to put some, we're going to put some of that oil on our bodies, anticipating that no matter what comes my way, God's got it. Look at verse 15. So yeah, we ought to pray for one another when suffering hits home. We ought to pray with others when sin sets in. And just imagine here, I mean, James is getting ready to close this whole book. 108 verses, so we're down to 107 right here. We're getting ready to roll in to the last couple, and he chooses this point before he closes it up. James has fell out of my Bible. It's just, this is it. But what if my Bible didn't have James in it? And we take it for granted, don't it? And what, what if... What would the church be missing if this had never been pinned and sent out? And so the last thing is it's critical because we need it. I need, I need this. The church at its best needs what James is ending with right here. Verse 15. As the prayer of faith will save the sick person, the Lord will raise him up if, if he has committed sins. He will be forgiven. And therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we were, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the land. And then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Verse 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his, 
of his way will, will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. Period. And so James is saying we got to be consistent. We have to be prayerful for one another when, when suffering hits home. But we have to be very diligent to pray when sin sets in. Church that's best of bodies equipped with, with prayer for believers. Can you be saved in sin? Yeah, I'm really good at it. <laughs> I don't want to be I'm trying to work it out of my system. But even Romans 7 says, well, I do the things that, that I know I should do, but I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do, I don't want to do. I'm trapped in this, this, and I have to I have to wait until this immortality is swallowed, mortality is swallowed up by immortality and incorruptibility. The thing I look forward to outside of seeing Jesus face to face is to no longer be battled with the desires of the flesh fighting here. I'm looking forward to heaven. So the question is: can you be saved in sin? Yes, but can you be saved and be happy in that sin? No. You can't do it. James 4, 9 says this. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. When you miss the mark of God. Psalm 38, 4 and 6. For my iniquities have flooded over my head and they are a burden too heavy for me to bear. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I'm bent over and, and brought very low. All day long I'll go around mourning. It's a picture of being physically sick, of just nauseous. Luke 15, 17, when he came to his senses. This is the story of the prodigal son. He said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. See, church. If sin breaks your heart and affects your consciousness... What makes you believe Satan still doesn't want to be your master? He always wants to hold you down and make you sick. Luke 14, 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person that you may have been invited to be your host. And so he's going on to tell us, be very careful what you do with your physical body because you could be trapped in some spiritual bondage. A church at its best goes to those in church who have gotten trapped in the snares of this world because the dangers of the consequence of sin. Yes, I want you to know the cross broke the condemnation of sin, but the pursuit of Satan is still very real for me and it's still very real for you. I don't know if you've experienced it, but if you're over the enemy target, you're going to receive the flack. The enemy is always looking to sift us like wheat. Are y'all with me? To try to get us out of there. And so why would James call for the elders and mature believers to go to offer those healing when, when we cozy up to sin? Because we love one another and we know that sin is going to make you sick. Sin is going to make you sick. Say, well, pastor, how's that, tr how's that true? Well... It's because disobedience to God can lead to physical sickness. 
The Scripture tells us that. This was David's experience when he tried to hide his sin. Remember? For Bathsheba, he tried, to, he tried to hide those things. Psalm 32 tells us this. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. To God be the glory. How joyful is a person who the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. Has a great, great news. And then David says this. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle. From my groanings all day long. He was worrying himself sick. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. When I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity, I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Hey, have you ever considered that Maybe the reason you're filled with a spirit of fear and struggle with stress and anxiety is because there's some hidden sin that's just wearing you out. That's what David's saying. It will just sit on you and it will eat at you and you feel like you're just wasting away. What the scripture tells us is, is that being at peace with God heals the mind and the body and the soul. Often the root of, of what's manifesting itself in our mind and our emotions is a spiritual problem. And you get things right with the Lord and you get some things out and you get some brothers and sisters and you start fighting that thing. Oh man, you feel so much better. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us this. Don't, don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Now may the God of peace himself, the person of God himself, sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful picture of the reality that it's it's very possible that dysfunction in a marriage is rooted in the tension that grows from hidden sin. See, how we, we can't be on the same page with our kids. We, we can't be on the same page as our spouses if we're consistently distracted by a guilty conscience. It consumes us and it distracts us. And it causes divisions among us. And what James wrote here, the literal translation says this. Make it a habit to confess your sins one to another. Make it a habit. Do it all the time. Because it keeps it fresh. It keeps it, it, keeps it in the front of your mind so you can get it out of there. Admit, admitting our faults before God and others for, 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 for who has sinned. It affects and it sets our mind and it sets our emotions and it sets our body free. Not just our physical body, but James saying, hey, collectively, a body at its best. We're only as powerful as the purity of our people. That's why ethics is our what? Doctrine is our glue. Doctrine is our bedrock. <laughs> ethics is our glue. Doctrine is our bedrock. Unity is our glue. Ethics is our power. Y'all are, are my people. If y'all know how many squirrels I had to run around in my head, y'all don't want to be in here. <laughs> Think about it like this. 
And when you were a kid at school and you got in trouble, and you know that uh, when you got home, it was going to be waiting on you, the whole day was ruined. You couldn't eat lunch. You, you didn't want to go to recess. You couldn't pay attention, right? All you thought about was the looming judgment that was coming that you knew that was waiting for you that you deserved. But why is it when you take that stuff home, all that guilt, all that conscience, all that bound up anxiety and fear, right? Y'all with me? And you take it home and, you, and it gets dealt with and it gets out. And mom and daddy give you the punishment. Why is it that you feel so much better and you're ready to go play with your friends down the street? It's the same idea. You know, any of you just were that type of kid that's like, don't put me on restriction, just whip me so I can get it over with. Where I can move on from this. That tension that we felt as a kid, we can carry that same thing as adults. And that tension carries over into our work life. And it carries over into our church life. It carries over into our, in our, in our marriage life. When I lived in Loganville for a while, um, <clears throat> we lived there in the late 90s. And, uh, and we had a neighbor, his, his name, was, my friend was Jason, so he was three years older than me. And, uh, and his dad worked for MARTA, and I didn't see his dad a whole lot. Uh, he left, left early and got in late. But I could tell just from, from Jason and his brother, Nick, that their dad was a very stern man. Just the way they carried themselves. He went on to be engineer at Tech. I mean, just a fabulous family. But they were, they were very disciplined people, and I could tell his dad was kind of a hard guy. And so we had a four-wheeler, and, uh, and I don't know what inspired me to do it. But um, I went through the front yard of, of, J- of Jason's house one day on that four-wheeler. And when I got in the middle of the yard, I just, you know, just gave it some gas, and I, did a, I, I drifted a little bit. And I left some pretty aggressive tire marks all in that front yard. And after I got you know, off, I thought, oh, no. This is bad. And I could see on Jason's face that, uh, that his dad was not going to be happy. And for the rest of the afternoon, there was such dread. I couldn't, I couldn't relax. I couldn't do homework. I couldn't do that. Just watching out the window, waiting for his dad to come home. And, uh, and sure enough, you know, about 6 o'clock or so, I saw his dad pull in. And, I, and about 10 minutes later, there was a knock on the door. And I knew what it was about. And I opened that door, and, and Jason's dad was standing there. And he said, did you leave those tracks in my front yard? I said, yes, sir. He said, don't do that ever again. I said, yes, sir. And he left. Oh, I felt so much better. Why did I feel better? Because it was out. And you know what? I never did that again. I never did that again. So what James is telling us is like, hey, don't carry that guilt and don't carry that fear around that's making you sick because we are a body. We can never sin alone because sin affects the whole body. Ethics is our power. And so this man here, text says he found healing when he confessed his sins to one another. Who? Mature believers in the body. I'm not saying go out and blast it. I'm saying find mature believers that have walked through the fires and go to them. Things in private, confess private. Things send in publicly, you confess those things publicly. And what he's saying is they're healing there. You guys write this down. What you cover up, God will uncover. Because he is just. But what we uncover, he will cover because he is good. Did y'all get that? 
those have, that have willingly entertained a small sin is just a satanic handhold. But I'm going to tell you, he wants to take that handhold and he wants to turn it into a, a foothold and that foothold will take, turn into a stronghold and that stronghold will turn into a stranglehold. And the beauty of the body is you go to other believers and you, and you get that stuff out. And that's how he says, he said, hey, that helps us out of the cycle of sickness and we win back our brother and we've been, we, win, we, we, we win back our sister. And well, what do we win back? They're not lost. You don't lose your salvation. That's not what I'm preaching. That's not what he's teaching. He's saying is we help them out of that snare because if we don't get them out of that snare, they will die in the trap. They will, they will wilt away and they will fall out of the fellowship. And the consequence of sin will run rampant. Like an animal caught in a trap, it would just wear themselves out, going in circles and circles. And so we come along and, and, and we, we test a, the genuine believer. Listen, is a genuine believer going to judge you and push you away if you confess your sins to him? Absolutely not. That's a lie that the enemy is trying to tell you to keep it in the dark. How is that, Pastor. I mean, won't telling other people only make me feel more ashamed? I'm telling you, I promise you, no, it won't. Why? Because they're going to pray. They're going to pray for strength for you to resist. Y'all with me? They're going to pray for understanding of God's grace. They're going to they're going to pray for new day mercy. They're going to check on you. They they're going they're going to help you stay out of sin pit. They're going to they're going to help you game plan for accountability. And most of all. You will know that the grip of Satan in secrecy has been broken and that weight will be lifted off of you. What a beautiful picture. There might be some consequences to sin because sin has consequences. That's, that's not what I'm saying. There will be consequences that we're going to have to live with. But they won't be near as bad as the suffering in silence and guilt before the Lord. That was David's story. He was withering away. He was sick. But as soon as it was exposed, he lost his son. But he was able to get up and to eat again. Because he felt refreshed. The Lord ministered to him as he brought things into the light. And that a believer is going to hurt you in confession is a lie. It's the last thing that the father of lies wants you to do. is is to bring something that he is using to take you out with and put it in the dark. The last thing the enemy wants you to do is bring it out to the dark. Because you bring into light, there's freedom. You guys write this down. A church at its best knows it's important to redeem the lost, but it's also important to revive the saved. If you're with me, say amen. And the Bible promises there's freedom and accountability. And a person is healed by the prayer of faithful people. And so if I could sum all this up, last 11 weeks. I could sum it up with one challenge. It would be this. Church, don't grow old in your faith. Grow up in your faith. And don't just come to church. Help grow the church in our consistency and in our prayer. And so here's how I want to close this, this series. Here's how I want to close this morning. Um, our praise team is going to come. And I've also asked a few believers to come join me at the altar. And they're going to spread out around here. And I just simply want to invite you 
to bring a prayer need to them. All right, y'all come on. I'm ask Debbie to stand up with me. Yeah, some others, Chad, Wayne. Here's what the text tells us. It says, hey, let's pray with one another. It says, sing praises with one another. It says, reveal your heart to one another. Expose sin to one another. And so if you've got something weighing on you and you want to bring it to another elder, another mature believer, I invite you just to get up and come forward. It's confidential. They're not going to tell me about it. They're going to pray with you about it. Amen? Offload that burden onto the shoulders of another believer who has had a song in the night. Because I guarantee you, every one of these people have had a song in the night. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. But are they willing to help carry the burdens as a church family at its best? Yeah. Maybe you want to sing some praises to them. Say, hey, this is what God's been doing. I praise God for His faithfulness. You just need to unload and get something off your chest. And let's do it and bring it to the light this morning. Singing, great are you, Lord. And let's be a bringer. Hey, let's, when you expose people to the gospel in church family, it makes a difference. Go out and invite somebody this week. Bring them with you. Be a bringer. Let me tell you what God's doing in my church. Let me tell you what God's doing in my heart. Let me tell you what God's doing in the lives of the people around me. Come and see. Come and follow and go and share. Let's stand together.